Yeah, and that one thing I always like to point out to folks, whether they're creators or advertisers, is that like one podcast download or one podcast listen is not the same as like a hit on a website or even a yeah, click on a YouTube video. It's like people are spending so much time with this, these podcasts. It's incredible. It's incredible. Okay, maybe maybe you got hundreds of downloads, but each one of those people spent hours with your brand. And that, to me, is something that like the top line numbers don't always communicate. Podcast Junkies, episode 229. Welcome back. If you are new to the show, my name is Harry Duran, host of said show. Interviews with some of the most interesting, fascinating, amazing podcast personalities from around the podosphere and folks doing really interesting work in the podcasting space. This week is just such a person. His name is Dave Zareb. He's the co-founder of Chartable. More on him in a minute. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with my friend and my CFO coach, Liz LaJoy of Zen Money Monday. It's an interesting episode because we pull back the curtain a little bit on the inner workings of Podcast Junkies and my company, Fullcast, and how instrumental Liz has been to help me get a better understanding and handle on all things finance-related and the story about how she started Zen Money Monday and the success she's had so far. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlett 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite and the link will be in the show notes as well. So this week we speak to Dave Zareb. He's the co-founder and CEO of Chartable. If you haven't heard of Chartable, it's a podcast analytics company that allows users to track and analyze their shows to grow their audience and their business. Prior to founding Chartable, Dave was an employee at AngelList, where he founded their New York City office. He's also co-founded two startups, reaching millions of users on iOS and the web, and was an engineer at Hot or Not and Microsoft. Interesting tidbits there. This is an interesting episode, two podcasters geeking out on podcasting. We hear about Dave's background. We touch on, obviously, the impact of COVID-19 and how Dave actually got into podcasting. We do a deep dive on the importance of analytics and the Genesis story for his company, Chartable, and some of the insights he's gleaned from his work there as well. He talks about the decision to raise funds from outside investors and the thought process that went into that. And we have a nice discussion about best practices for business owners looking to expand their branded podcasts. So really, this is a good episode uh, to have a notepad handy because I think there's some interesting tidbits you're going to be taking away from this one. Let's not forget that this episode is also brought to you by Fullcast. Fullcast Fullcast.co is the website. If you need help with any aspect of your show from launch to production and marketing, we can help. Schedule a free chat at Fullcast.co forward slash chat 15 about your existing or new show. Stay tuned to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. It's a little Easter egg regular listeners will be used to and new listeners, you'll have to listen to the end of the episode to find out all about it. So let's jump into this conversation in the meantime with Dave. So Dave Zareb, co-founder of Chartable. Thank you so much for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Thanks so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. So just to date stamp this, uh, we're in the in the middle of May, in the middle of a COVID <laughs> pandemic that has radically transformed a lot of things 
we thought were, were normal in terms of how we work on a day-to-day basis and how we engage with each other, I think, as human beings. So maybe just to, to kick off things, what's been uh, life like for the past, I guess now we're going on almost two months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Wanderer for, you know, I'm, I'm based in New York, so it hit us pretty quickly and pretty hard. Personally, it's been interesting because we had just moved out of New York City in January. I've got two young children, my wife and I and our kids. We were in a tiny apartment in Manhattan for a long time, and it just kind of got to be too much. And so we ended up moving out to the suburbs. At the time, it felt like a big deal, like a really conflicted move, right? And then two months later, it feels like the best decision that we've ever made by like a million miles, right? Yeah. So our day-to-day here is pretty great, you know? It's like we live in a cute little town. And uh, my wife and I have desks right next to each other. I asked her to, <laughs> to work in a different room because, you know, I'm in here for the parent cats. And so from a personal level, it's it's been kind of weirdly okay, Yeah. for which I'm very grateful. The pandemic has definitely affected our company quite a bit, both at a people level and also at a, you know, business economic level. Because we're based in New York, a lot of us did get sick. Only one of us got tested because there weren't even tests, right? <laughs> and so the month of March was really crazy for us. I got sick in early March, then my wife got sick, and like my co-founder got sick, and our wow. chief revenue officer, one of our engineers, and a lot of people got sick for a tiny company, right? So more than half of us got something like COVID, right? Whether or not it was, who knows, right? Yeah. It felt like it hit us really hard right away. And of course, there's there's changes in the market as well. But it felt like it hit our small group of people <laughs> really quickly and really hard. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I actually have talked about this a little bit. Um, my best friend from high school passed from COVID. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, uh, we had fallen out of touch, and we had talked in probably over ten years. But that was the closest it hit home for me when I realized, like, yes, this is a serious thing. Because I think until it, you realize that it's the severity of it, because it, it can strike, and you've probably experienced this as well with your team. It can, it's a wide range of symptoms and durations, and there's no rhyme or reason. I think. Yeah, it's it's really intense. There's some something I saw going around there. It's like, you know, it's recession until you lose your job and then it's the depression. Yeah. Right. And then it's like there's something about the same thing for like it's a pandemic when you or your family gets sick, right? Yeah. And before that it's like theoretical, right? Yes, uh, exactly. And, and, and it's definitely went from theoretical to to real real fast here. But you know, thankfully everyone in you know in our team is is doing okay and you know, everybody's able to find, you know, ways to work. We were already like a partially remote company anyway so now we're fully remote so (laughs) yeah but it's definitely really jarring because like i was just just getting used to a new commute and like all this stuff and not happening anymore just been at home metro north yeah metro north yeah we had a nice walk to the train down the street and just getting used to that getting my like train pass and all that stuff and don't need those anymore so (laughs) it's interesting so i grew up in yonkers okay cool yes i'm just a few towns north i'm in irvington yeah, I know Irvington, Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> yeah, just saw the Sleepy Hollow, exactly. So yeah, I grew up there, went to school in White Plains. I went to Archbishop Stepanak, like an all-boys Catholic high school in White Plains. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm very familiar, and most of my life has been spent there. And I, But I did live in the city. I lived in Upper East Side after college, Stuyvesant Park, Stuyvesant Town yeah. was there, Lower East Side. So I was there for Hurricane Sandy, and I was in New York for 9-11, so just understand like when New York goes that through a major event and this is obviously something that affected the entire world so to see the pictures of new york anytime you see new york or a big city like new york shut down and the streets empty it's just eerie 
It is eerie for sure. And like, and you know, honestly, I haven't been back for better or for worse. Like in some ways that reflects like my like great position as like a tech guy or whatever. It's like, okay, I'm like really lucky, you know, I'm, I'm lucky and I'm grateful, but it's also like so strange, you know? <laughs> it is. Yeah. And I still I have to go back and we're going to like, our office lease is up shortly and we're just not going to renew it. Right. And so yeah. I'm going to go and cr- clear it out. You know? you know, like what a weird thing. How long did you have it? Not that long. So like we were a, we're still a very small team. We're seven people now. My co-founder and I, it was just the two of us for quite a while before we had even known, you know, before we even got Chartable started. It was just like we were trying different ideas. And then we had hired a couple of people in March of 2019. And then we hired a few more in the last few months. So most of the team was brought on recently. But, but yeah, we were just had an office in Midtown for a little bit and <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> well, it's that times... A thousand, ten thousand, whatever it is. I mean, Twitter just announced employees can work at home indefinitely. Salesforce just, I just saw this morning announced for the rest of 2020. And those are the high profile ones. Like, yeah, for sure. And then what you just mentioned as well, like, how can you justify the cost of, especially New York City real estate of all places, but also the forced experiment because every company wanted to test out remote and probably dabbled in it up until now, but to be forced into it and then stumble along the way and then realize over two or three weeks or a month that yes, you know, we can get 80%, 90% of what we need done remotely, you know, and, and what that's going to mean for office life as, as we've come to know it. For sure. It's a huge change, like, uh, you know, across the a lot, like huge sectors of the economy, right? For us, like we were already only going in a couple of days a week mm-hmm. just because I have children. Like the, my time is fairly constrained along, you know, yeah, because I want to, because I want to be around my family, right? Yeah, I want to see course. my kids grow up. So it was already something that we were trying to dial back on in terms of in-person. And uh, so we would use in-person time primarily for like, you know, just being able to see each other, grab some lunch. And then we do a lot of like kind of creative work. We were, you know, planning product stuff or brainstorming ideas. It's great to do that in person with a whiteboard, et cetera. Um, but like the actual, like, especially for, you know, programmers, like the actual engineering work, you like don't want anyone around, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you want, if they could be like a totally black, like room, you know, with like just me and my screen, I would be in great shape. And my right? energy so, drinks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, coffee, right? I'm a, yeah, 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 yeah. I've moved, moved on from Mountain Dew, you know, but the kind of contrast between those two different modes of work you know, I think the thing that will suffer for us, at least, is that kind of creative aspect that yeah. that you get from the in-person discussions. But, you know, we've been doing okay. And we've got folks, five of us are based in the New York area, but got somebody in Texas and another person in LA. And like, okay, so we're already working remotely some chunk of the time. It's just that I have yeah. coworkers that I haven't even met, which is weird, you know? <laughs> that is weird. I wonder if it'll change the way people think about the interactions that they do coordinate, maybe retreats or quarterly team meetings and just kind of make them more, you know, sort of jam-packed and and sort of like like an intensive or, you know, whatever it is. And I'm I'm wondering if you've thought about that as well. Yeah, for sure. We were already kind of like moving in that direction because we were hiring people kind of across the U.S., and so we had had planned the week of St. Patrick's Day, which was the week that the NBA shut down, I think. We had folks were planning on coming to new york oh wow but then like we had like you know we canceled it a few weeks ahead of time just because like we knew you know the the direction was not good yeah exactly like the idea that people might be putting themselves at risk at all yeah just didn't seem worth it you know 
so yeah, when things get back to normal, assuming they will, hopefully they will. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever whatever normal means. Whatever normal means, like which is going to be a changing definition. Then yeah, that's like that's probably the pattern. We'll get together less often, but probably in a more structured way, which might end up being great. All Richard, we'll sound. We're all going to be experimenting and trying different things, right? So let's uh, wind the clock back. I'm, I'm wondering when podcasts as a medium actually came on your radar. The very first time, back when I was living in San Francisco, and a friend of a friend's company was called Odeo, and it was a podcast directory. Yep. And they were borrowing server space from the company that I worked at. Oh, funny. And I was like, oh, that's weird. They had this like directory of like radio shows. Like That's pretty cool. cool. I didn't really think about it all that much. Honestly, I wasn't listening all that much at the time seen some of the early stuff like twit stuff like that but it really wasn't until the last few years that i spent more time getting deep into it and i never really thought about it from a work perspective i was always just like a listener right it's like oh cool like you know i open this app and there's great stuff there like how awesome is that right but i actually hadn't even thought much about how it all works from a technical perspective or from a business perspective until uh, my co-founder harish and i were working together and trying to you know explore different ideas we made a list of you know, things that we're interested in. Yeah. And for whatever reason at the time, maybe it's just because we were both like, we were just working just he and I, and we were, you know, listening to a lot of podcasts. So it just ended up being at the top of the list. Right. And so we spent some time just kind of investigating more of the technical and the business side of things. And just like that, it was like a rabbit hole or something. Like once I started going in, I was like, man, this is such a deep and complex market. So much creativity, so much like crazy history and the tech that underlies it is like weirdly open in a way that's like unusual, right? So there's so many things that are fascinating about podcasting that I kind of like, you know, fell in the hole and never came back out. (laughs) (laughs) How did you meet Harish? Harish and I worked together at the last company we both worked at, which is called AngelList. It's like a network for startups to meet investors and for people to find jobs. So I worked there for like five or six years. And then we hired Harish. We both worked together in the New York office for a couple of years. And then we decided, hey, we like working together. We, you know, we're not startup dudes anymore, but we still like had that desire to, you know, try starting something again. And so we decided to go off on our own and, and give it a try. And Odeo is, most people probably know the, the, the backstory, but they're the birthplace of Twitter. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So Odeo turned into Twitter, which I wouldn't have predicted. I mean, who knows? You know, it's like, it was a funny time. You know, Twitter's done okay. <laughs> yeah, you can say that yeah but like it was a funny thing it was like so early and it felt like i remember being in a cafe in san francisco and san francisco, like this was like web 2.0 time it was like a pretty cool time to be working in, on the internet and sf i remember being in a cafe and somebody had their like video ipod out watching a video podcast like sitting at the Kenny cafe yeah and i was like i've never seen that before like that's weird that's cool right i yeah, mean I, yeah. I, I mean twit's still doing video which is cool but like you know just things went in who knows who could have predicted the direction that things ended up going in. It's like one of those things, this market's been around for such a long time. I mean, radio has been around for, yeah. for, you know, a hundred years at this point. Podcasting is just a way to get audio to people's ears and people have been doing it for a really long time. I'm a relative newcomer having only been doing this for a couple of years, right? It does feel like uh, there's a, a bunch of trends that have, have made, you know, things more exciting in the last few years. And part of it is just the, the steady creep of like more and more people listening, which is awesome. But it's also that like the, there's just so many amazing, amazing shows. Yeah. That's just really exciting. Like, how could you not be excited about that, right? <laughs> there are so many. And so I'm wondering, as you start to think about this space and where you wanted to try something out, what was it about 
podcast analytics that caught your eye. And, and I get the sense from some of the posts you've done, that's some of the stuff you love to geek out on. So I'm wondering how much of that played a part in, in deciding what, what Chartable was going to look like. Yeah, well, we spent a lot of time learning about podcasting before we did anything, right? Because as like a programmer, I mean, I've been programming since I was a little kid. There's like a, the instinct is like, let's go out and start building something, right? Let's just go build, build, build. And I've done, you know, I've been around long enough and built enough things that didn't work that like my first instinct now is like, oh, I'm really excited about this. Let me talk to people and kind of see like, you know, what are the, what are the subtleties here? Like, what are the nuances? What do people really want? What are the problems they have? Like, yeah. and how, you know, can, can I bring any of my knowledge and skills to like help, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than say like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a podcast app, right? Which is <laughs> yeah. like probably most programmers like first like instinct is like, oh, I'm going to make this app, Right. And that was my first instinct. And then we interviewed like dozens of listeners, like trying to get as far away from our own social networks as possible. And I was like, so like, do you like podcasts? They're like, yeah. Like, how did you find out about them? I heard about how people listen, why people listen. And at the end, I'd sneak in a question there. So like, what do you think about, you know, what app do you use? I'm like, what do you think about it? They're like, well, I use Apple Podcasts and it's fine. And I was like, do you ever change? No. It's like, Okay. Like maybe the answer has changed now because Spotify is being so aggressive, right? And like yeah. if, if their favorite show moved to Spotify, maybe they'd switch. But like Joe Rogan, yeah, like Joe Rogan, for example, <laughs> which happened yesterday as of this recording, right? But I was like, okay, so obviously the app thing—it's not about the app; it's about the audio, right? It's about the show. We just crossed that off the list and just thought, okay, well, well, if it's really all about the show, like what are the problems that like listeners and creators have, assuming that the app thing is covered? Which and we discovered that. You know, the data situation around podcasting is complex and it yeah. doesn't compare all that favorably to a lot of other media, especially from like a analytics or advertising analytics perspective. And so the more we talked to various creators and talked to advertisers and talked to listeners, we thought, hey, maybe there's something here around data. And like I've been working in, in tech my whole life, uh, for better or for worse, you know, and I like love number crunching and like trying to figure out, like trying to use data to make better decisions. Just so, and, I thought, like, what about that for podcasting, right? Like, the, the yeah. parallel to me is like one of the first, my first startup I started, we ended up doing the apps on the App Store for iPhone back in 2008, 2009. So, like, right after the App Store started. And there was just an explosion in apps back then. But it was also really hard to be an app developer because you didn't really know who was using your app or how they found it. And basically, Apple would give you numbers once a day about how many downloads you had, yeah. right? So this is starting to sound a little bit familiar, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually launched a mobile app as well, so I have some familiarity with the App Store. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So like all that stuff, you know, apps, I think it's probably hard to remember back in 08, 09. Nobody knew that apps were going to be the thing that they ended up becoming, right? Even, you know, there was an interview that was republished in the Wall Street Journal with Steve Jobs who said like, you know, a month after the App Store started, there were a million apps downloaded. And he was like, wow, that's like way better than we ever thought it would be, <laughs> right? And that's like Steve Jobs like, yeah, with his own yeah. app store, right? But you know, there was a whole ecosystem that developed for creators of apps to like help them build better apps, help them understand their audience, help them grow their apps and uh, rank higher on the charts, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really, there's so many parallels to what's happening in podcasting. And then you could have almost any app and it would get downloaded because there was nobody there. You know, there's no other apps, right? So people open up the app store and they're like, oh, here's a fart app. I'm going to like download it, right? The guy made like a million dollars, if I recall correctly. Yeah, just because he was first, the first <laughs> yeah. fart app. Like, what a great idea, right? I don't know if there's like fart podcasts. I mean, maybe it's already been covered. But, <laughs> you know, things change relatively quickly, you know, over the course of, you know, the coming months and years. Like, 
it became super competitive to try and get a new app out there. Yeah. Because there are so many. Yeah. This is sounding familiar, right? There's no oh, yeah. There's so many podcasts now, right? Like how do people discover new podcasts? How do you know how do you grow your audience? So we just saw so many parallels that we thought we gotta we gotta dig in and see if we can build something here, right? What would the first prototypes look like? Because I know when people think analytics, people who have been podcasting for a while in- inevitably think of PodTrack. And then, you know, there was some people that have varying opinions about <laughs> the, the, what, <laughs> how good it is or not. But the early word was that it wasn't reliable and it wasn't the full picture of everything that was happening. So I think, you know, people were a little burned when, they, when it came to the idea of actually having someone, a third party, like interpret your, your analytics for you. Yeah, it's hard. And the structure of podcasting makes it especially hard. Like if you're a YouTube, if, if I'm like Google on YouTube now, and you want to know how many views a YouTube video got, Google knows the answer. They like yeah. own the server, they own the website, and they'll just tell you, right? But like in podcasting, it's like you can consume a podcast on so many different devices, through so many different apps. And like people host their podcasts in so many different ways on different services, or maybe they self-host, or maybe who knows what it is, right? And so that complexity makes it a lot harder to give a straightforward answer. It's not like, oh, you just load up the YouTube page and see how many views the video has. That's exactly. just not how it works, right? Yeah. We started with just aggregating the public data around a podcast. So your chart positions from Apple and it's from Censure and from a couple other places because it was, you know, following the parallels to the app store, like we felt like that was data that was helpful, at least giving you a sense of like how you're doing. Does that require, I remember early on, it requires people to connect their Apple Store. So we can get the public data we can get without any authentication or anything like that. So it's like if you, you know, Apple has interfaces to grab the data, it's the same stuff that powers Apple Music and okay. uh, iTunes and all that stuff. And so we just kind of, we crawl that stuff every once in a while. I mean, depending on how, what country it is or whatever. For Vanuatu, it's less often than the US, for example. You know, we just like, we can link up, it's all public data, right? So yeah, we're just like yeah. grabbing public data and saying, hey, here you go right we thought we'll build this we'll see if people like it and they did we got like a lot of a lot of adoption pretty quickly and so then we thought okay well what are what are the other kinds of data that we should be putting together this public data like your chart ranges and stuff but there's also private data like your downloads or your consumption analytics from apple and spotify and so what we try to do with our first version of chartable was to take all of that data and put it in one place so you can at least take like a mission control for your podcast yeah. yeah for a lot of folks it's you know for folks with smaller audiences, it's probably overload, honestly. You know, if you're getting, you know, my show, like I have a podcast, I'm trying to put up, put together a second season here now that I have my microphone uh, at home. You know, we get a few hundred downloads an episode or whatever, right? So it's like, you know, it's like, yeah. so you don't need to go deep into your, you know, rankings or whatever to for that. It's like, ultimately, like, there's like really basic things you can do to build your audience. But there's a lot of folks who are really trying to build a business or build a brand. Yeah. Or if they're like larger publishers that have, you know, millions or millions of millions of downloads, like that data starts to become more and more important about making decisions about which content is performing the best. It's like from an editorial perspective, which content is performing the best for your advertisers, like what audiences are really growing, which shows are driving adoption across your network. Yeah. There's a zillion questions that can be answered there that, you know, there weren't very good answers for. And so that's we just started building and just kept trying to like listen to our users and talk to people and learn what the real problems were. And do you now have I know part of the some of the pushback, I think, early on, and people were, were worried that it would, might violate Apple's terms of service to allow you to connect and pull and log into uh, uh, someone's podcast connect data and then pull that in. So is that, are you handling it different now? Is that still an option? 
It's still an option. It depends on how you want to look at it. Like it's up to you whether you want to let us do that or not. Yeah. Uh, we look at it as like us doing it on your behalf, right? Yeah. You could go log into a podcast connect and go export that CSV every single day if you wanted to. But that's not that fun, wasn't it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've worked with CSVs and we, we do some of that uh, hand manipulating of data for clients because, I mean, just I'm just wondering if it how it affects or what Apple's stance on it if, it, if it's anything that would violate the terms and conditions with Apple that you know of. I mean, Apple, they'll never say one thing to the other. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they're a very secretive company. There are parallels to other industries, like the company that we really thought of ourselves as as modeling was this company called App Annie, which does like a oh, lot yeah. of what we do. I remember App Annie. That model, yeah. like, when I say like, you know, it's like this right. mobile apps. Like App Annie was one of the big companies that did that for mobile apps. Yeah, and they did it the same way. Uh, eventually, Apple created a special kind of way to access the App Store data, private App Store data, without revealing your Apple ID password. I would love for that to happen. I don't want to yeah. store this data, you know, to store anyone's logins. It's like something we take super seriously. You know, we're very careful about it because it is, you know, sensitive. So I'd prefer not to because it would make my life easier, right? Yeah. <laughs> but for now, because the, we think that data is important, we're going to do it on behalf of our users, you know, and same for Spotify. And and you're doing that are you doing the same I know that you're authenticating through Spotify as well. So the, the idea is to really just pull in and then the new pot, the the new Google dashboard as well, right? Yeah, so we haven't started ingesting the data from the Google one yet. Okay. It's something we're looking into. It's exciting. I mean, it, it, I'm happy to see more companies do this. And I think Stitcher has been doing this for a while too, although it's I think it's less well known, but you know, we would love to have a way to access all that stuff and preferably without any uh, private, you know, without anything more than an API key from a user or something like that. I think it's great that Google is not providing that data too. And it's certainly something we're looking at. And so what were some of the early findings? Because I'm, I'm a bit of a, a stats nerd. And like I mentioned, like part of my challenges with some earlier hosting companies and without getting to specifics who, it, it was just very frustrating to go into the dashboard and not see data that I would term as actionable. I used to actually manage a customer service reporting team when I worked at E-Trade. Okay. And we had a bunch of people who would just create reports using Crystal Reports and Tableau. And <laughs> all these. And it, the, the mandate to them was always, hey, we're delivering reports to like VPs who have a very limited amount of time to like, they're not going to sit there and pour over your beautiful reports and fonts. So you have to make it like actionable. And so it was always like, can they look at that and within 30 seconds decide, you know, exception reporting, right? Is this something I need to be worried about or not? Is it something that I can act on or not? And so I always think about that when I think about reporting. And so early on, we were pulling CSVs from these, these hosting companies and I was manipulating the data in Google Sheets to create week over week reviews, month over month, trending, you know, where are we seeing the growth? Because a lot of these stats are, are very pretty, but at the end of the day, it's like as a podcaster, I always think, okay, I have like, I see like a, a heat map for like, you know, UK listeners. And I'm like, just staring at it. I'm like, what, what, are, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> like, I don't know. So <laughs> I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Like there's actually a small subset that's actionable on a daily basis. And you got right at it. It's to me, it's about like, how is your most recent episode pacing against your previous ones? That to me, if I was going to look at one chart, it's like, we put out a, a pacing chart on chartable recently. Like that's the one it's like, how am I doing? Does my day one better on the day one last from the last show? Right. And if you can just like slowly improve that, you're going to be in great shape, right? The compounding effect of building your audience, of adding subscribers is an amazing thing. You know, the other most actionable stuff I would say 
for a general audience is like using our smart links, right? So like we have these links that yeah. allow you to link to your show. You know, it's convenient for your listeners. Like there's a lot of services that do this that give you like one link that let them pick an app that actually works for them. Yeah. But more than that, we also let you count the number of downloads that come in through a particular link, right? And so if I am trying to grow my audience other than social media, whether that's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, or if it's through my own email newsletter, you can figure out which of those channels is actually driving engagement with your podcast. And that to me is also really actionable, right? Because it's like, okay, yeah. I'm going to spend the next month focusing on my email newsletter. And then I'm going to track whether or not it's actually driving additional listeners or not. Like that, that seems like, you know, something that a podcast of, of any audience size can you know take action with right versus yeah like the the geography maps they're cool it's like okay i've got like 100 listeners in croatia like that's great but unless you're going to do like a croatian event or something you know it's not necessarily actionable although what we've heard you know we we do present a lot of data and we're trying to trying to find ways to make it more sense and to make it more actionable is that for a lot of folks like one of the challenges of the medium is that you you just get so little feedback right exactly you put the episode out into the world it shows up in your Crickets. RSS feed. Yeah. And then like, okay, some downloads come in, right? But that's like just so removed from, you know, and maybe it's just the expectation of digital media these days. Like, you know, you post to Instagram, the likes start flowing in, right? That doesn't happen in podcast land, right? What we've heard from folks, even with small audiences, is like, oh, okay, knowing that I have some listeners in Croatia, that like makes me feel good. There's somebody halfway across the world and they're tuning in. And, like that's like a little bit of motivation to keep me going. Right. That to me, like under, I wouldn't discount that too much. Right. Like, because there's so little feedback you get, like just having a little motivation to keep going, I think is a great thing. Yeah. I think, you know, when people think of all the different ways that one link can help you figure out where all the sources coming from. I think of like Google Analytics. And I think you guys, uh, and you guys actually allow for the Facebook tracking pixel because this is a big thing when you talk about businesses as, as well because you can't pixel the apple site so we produce shows for business clients and you know the constant question is like how how do i know like my who's listening and where they're coming from and yeah and, and i'm wondering as you build you know you do you do have the the landing page where like are you a publisher or are you an advertiser how are you balancing like who you're building the the tool set for are you seeing that there's a split for that or do, you, or do you find that because businesses need the analytics more because if they are building a business off their podcast, you know, there's, there's certain things that they want to know that where that, that the podcast is gaining traction. That's a great question. So we do offer services to publishers as well as to advertisers. We originally started just with publishers, but we found that there was just so much demand from businesses, like you mentioned, to give them more insight into what's happening. Whether they have a branded podcast or trying to figure out if people who listen to their branded show end up you know, taking an action on their website or something, or from advertisers, right? And so there are some products that you know are really specifically for one audience, but ultimately we view it as like ecosystem and, and both sides kind of like feed each other and help each other, right? It's like, Without publishers, there's no advertisers, right? Without advertisers, there are fewer, many fewer publishers. Some folks yeah. don't have advertising, but most do, right? And all of it is built on the same technical infrastructure. So and same this kind of, you know, we call it a pipeline, data pipeline that like tracks whether or not my campaign on Facebook is driving listeners to my podcast is the same kind of infrastructure, although the, you know, the details are slightly different. What that tracks, okay, if I advertise my podcast on another podcast, is that helping to grow my audience? Or is such and such advertiser who's sponsoring my show, are they getting some results based on that? And that's all flowing through the same data infrastructure. 
So the baseline, it's all kind of the same data under the hood. And then we just got to figure out how to package it up and help it solve people's problems, right? So you recently raised a round of funding. Yes. And so what was the thought process behind initially going after that to allow, what was the type of, you know, was there a need that you felt at the time that we need to grow and we have some specific initiatives that we want to work on? And, and I think with this money, we can get there. Yeah, so Harish, my co-founder, and I, when we started the company, we thought, oh, we're definitely not going to raise money. So we had both done it before. Harish had raised money for his company, Octopart. They were part of like the Y Combinator incubator way back, like very early days. Yeah. We worked there for a long time. Raising from outside investors, like, it still has some cachet. It is really hard, and it puts a ton of pressure on you. And to willingly choose that takes you know, a certain mindset right either an ignorance <laughs> or an acceptance of those uh <laughs> yeah. of those like kind of challenges that you're placing on yourself but of course it, it also gives you a lot of opportunity right and so we were self-funding the business for over a year and we just the more like i said i fell down the rabbit hole of podcasting and the deeper i went i just thought man there's just so many, much opportunity here right yeah are we really just going to go at the pace that we can fund ourselves or could we pour a little rocket fuel on this and just like really be able to explore more and grow faster and figure out like kind of tackle bigger problems? Because like a lot of what we, what we were doing at the time was constrained by the fact that we were two guys and we had to keep our costs like super low or else we would have, you know, it's all coming out of, <laughs> all coming directly out of our bank accounts, right? And we weren't paying ourselves. And, you know, so there's a lot of sweat and money out the door <laughs> went into that first year of the company. Every single entrepreneur listening right now can definitely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, if you started a company, you know what it's like. It's stressful, but it's, you know, this is what we chose. This is what we choose. We continue yeah, to choose. Yeah. Uh, and we just thought, okay, this market has so much potential. We just think that podcasts are so deeply undervalued at every step of the of the chain. What to find investors who thought the same way. And the story that we uh, pitched is, is basically what we ended up building, which is like mission control for your podcasts, right? That's great. And then it's since expanded from there to solve more more specific problems like our smart links for publishers or yeah. smart ads, the advertising attribution stuff. But it's all pretty much in line with like what we had originally acknowledged, which is actually, I think, unusual these days. So we're always learning from our customers. Uh, it's not like, you know, we're just like sticking to some roadmap that we wrote like on the back of a napkin or something. I feel like it was the right decision to raise money in the first place because because I think it is true. As we've seen, podcasting has, it's grown a lot in the, in the few years that I've been involved and it's continuing to grow. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of room for improvement on the tech side. And that's what I'm here to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah, it's definitely been exciting just even the, since the time I've been around since 2014, just to see what's happening. Because at the time I was in, interviewing veterans, like people who were doing it since 2006, right? And they're yeah. just like, and I was like, wow, this is crazy. And so just even to see what's happened since I started, it's it's been crazy because there's like varying degrees of like increase in interest and and i'm always fascinated by the edison research report when it comes out i'm everyone in the podcasting world like <laughs> anxiously awaits that like Christmas it's the Day. big one it's the big <laughs> one i think it's interesting though I, I love the edison research stuff and it's definitely like like if it wasn't for tom webster right like there'd be way fewer venture pitches for podcasting so <laughs> every single podcast pitch has like at least one if not more oh, yeah. slides oh yeah from uh, infinite dial right yeah infinite dial Which, yep I think it's great the work that they do. And we certainly used to <laughs> use one of those slides as well. But I also think it's like, like I hope to at one point be able to shed some additional light onto what's happening in podcasting, you know, as a company because 
I think that as amazing as that research is, and it's obviously they'd spend, you know, they're really good at it and there's so much detail there. Yeah. It's still just one one lens, right? You know, we hope to over time be able to have the resources to, you know, pr- to shed additional light on what's happening and trends with consumers and producers, advertisers, et cetera. I know part of the the pushback sometimes, and and you hear this from some of the older established hosting companies, is this uh, this need to have an a URL appended to your RSS feed, right? And you need to actually have a good working relationship with all these hosting companies because at the end of the day, every podcaster is every podcast is sourced from a host, you know. And so, can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how it's changed, and and what opportunities you see, you see there in the future? Yeah, so a big chunk of our infrastructure or a big chunk of our capabilities is powered by spotting our URL prefix into your RSS feed. So for folks that don't know fully how it works is like when you click play on an episode from like thousands of podcasts, the first thing it does is it hits Chartable's web server and then it goes and downloads the file from like Libsyn or Megaphone or 19, whatever. And so it is really important for us to be on friendly terms with as many hosting companies as possible. Almost every hosting company in the world that we know of works with us. There's a couple that don't. That's okay. That's their choice, right? I mean, I think it's a bummer for their users. That's the way the podcast world is. It's an open ecosystem. We are, you know, we're trying to work within the constraints that exist. Honestly, I'd rather not have the prefix there. It, you know, we're currently handling something like almost 700 million downloads a month through the prefix. It's crazy, and it keeps me up at night, right? So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the fear, right? Because sometimes yeah. I think there wasn't. You guys actually had an incident recently that there was a something happened with the servers, right? So I think that's the biggest yeah. fear because it affects the delivery of of your. It podcast was the first episode. time we had like a real outage, and it happened in March. Our our service provider that our like cloud, you know, the people that actually run the our that Charitable runs on, they had a complete outage for every single one of their customers. So like huge chunks of the internet went down, right? But we went down too. And that like, it sucked for us. It sucked for our users. It's not okay. We have been investing in trying to make our service as redundant as possible. You know, there's still, you know, it's the internet. I don't want to jinx myself. (laughs) It will go down again at some point. It will, yeah. It it must. Like it's the internet, right? Like things don't work, right? It's crazy that, you know, the more I learn about the internet, I'm still learning. You know, it's crazy that it works at all right? (laughs) It's more than a series of tubes. (laughs) Yeah. But, but is it though? Is it really? That's true. (laughs) At the end of the day, that's exactly what it, yeah, it's, it's all a a man-made Rube Goldberg invention. So yeah, for sure. So like, so we have this prefix and it was definitely, you know, when we first came on to the scene, if you will, we had to like, kind of, we, we were learning why we wanted to talk to different hosting providers, ask them to work with us. Some of them didn't want to work with us in the beginning. But I think that we've overall proven that a that we take this really seriously and we're not going to go down unless like you know huge chunks of the internet go down, right? Yeah. And then b that like we're we're really trying to do good work here. We're not trying to do anything weird. We're not trying to scam people. We're not trying to you know collect data that we shouldn't be or anything like that. We're trying to help podcasters, right? And that is like pretty basic. I hope people can see that from everything that we've done, right? It's like it's it's really true, right? So like that has helped, and also just kind of being. I think communicating well, being open about what we're doing, sharing data back with the community, and just building good stuff that people want to use, right? Yeah, I think early on, and you know, we saw a lot of people, as with any growing industry, people jumping in and out, or just fly-by-night companies who are just like, oh, just 
change the way you you normally like do your regular production process you know podcast hosts are offering free hosting and that makes any veteran podcaster just really really nervous because even just changing your rss feed from one host to another is just like nerve-wracking because you'll lose your stats you know all that sort of stuff so um i i think going you know i think obviously early on when people heard about charitable like oh another service are they around are they going to be around in the future should i even like play with this and people dabbled with it and obviously you've seen the adoption pick up but i think building those relationships and that's the beauty of like this podcasting ecosystem is like you go to the the conferences and you see like the six or seven podcast hosting companies all like in the same circle yeah and so i think I it's know, i love all, this industry i love yeah. that it's small like that and that yeah. it is you know there are a lot of relationships like that you know i feel really fortunate fortunate to have ended up here because, you know, I love the creators. I love the hosting companies with other folks on the tech side. You know, we work with all kinds of folks from all sides and everybody's been really cool. And that's not always the case, you know? That's true. I feel like our customers are amazing and our partners are amazing. And I really enjoy working with them and talking to them, right? And that that hasn't always been the case with the stuff I've worked on. And I feel really lucky for that to be the case here. So I've been just spending a lot more time, like I said, I have a company called Fullcast and we produce shows for businesses. So I, I think making a more concerted effort, I've played with a lot of the universal link companies as well. But then I, when I realized like the power of using the chartable universal subscription link, in addition to everything that's provided because of the universal front end, you know, the, the dashboard for, for all your podcast reporting, I've been kind of spending more time there. So, and just getting familiar because I think when I first went in, there weren't a lot of bell, as many bells and whistles. So yes. I think it's, yeah, so there's more to play with, but also more to sort of like overwhelm and making sure that you're, you're getting the benefit. Cause if you're going to do it for me, I'm like, well, put in your pick, put in your Facebook pixel, like put in everything you can so that when you do get the reporting back, it's the most robust possible. So are there best practices? I mean, if you think about it, like I'm, I'm we're, and we, it's a done for you service. So we actually do it for our clients. Like the less they can do and, and get their hand <laughs> and get their hands under the, the engine, so to speak, the better, because we just want to give them actionable data. So as we think about a show that's set up for the, for the purposes of being a business to monetize. And if you think about how people should be used, business owners should be using Chartable, you know, if a podcast is their revenue generation machine, like, are there some best practices for, for business owners? Yeah, for sure. And just to be clear, we, we're talking about folks building like advertising businesses or folks that are are doing branded podcasts for their Brand, yeah, branded podcasts or, or or podcasts. Like we work with a lot of like executive coaches, for example, who want to know that they you know they can track activity to their show, and then they I always tell clients you know what's the one thing you want a listener to do as a result of having listened to your episode, and I always tell them the podcast is what's just one piece of your marketing funnel for sure. Get them to the lead magnet, get them to like book a referral call with you or something something actionable. So I'm really interested in what else I could be doing to help them see more from their data or just even present them the, the data in a way that's more actionable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that like first thing is to use use the links, right? Use Chartables, Smart Wings, like hook it up to your show, hook up our analytics prefix on your host, and then you can at least show them, okay, when people click on your website and they're coming to your podcast, here's what happens. The the, the deeper integration though I mean, that to me is just kind of basic. It was yeah, yeah. when we found out that that didn't exist for podcasting, we were just like, that's nuts, right? Because like any other form of digital media, that level of analytics is just taken for granted at this point, right? And that's all under the, the smart links section? Yes. So if you have smart links for a show and you hook up the analytics prefix, we'll tell you if, you know, if you 
create a link and you post it somewhere, we'll tell you how many downloads came in through the link. And that's just a default setting. Like even if you just, the, the very basic thing you did was actually just enable it and start using it. You- yep, yep. As long as you've got the RSS integration in the feed for the show, we're good to go, right? So that gives you a sense of like, what is sending people from the internet, from your website or you know email newsletter, or whatever, to your podcast, right? And getting a sense of what is actually driving listeners, I think is really helpful, right? So if you're working on a show for your client, I would say, okay, you got to tag the link for their website, for their newsletter, for their social media posts, or all the different ways that you might link to the podcast, you should probably have a, have a, a link for that, right? So you're talking now about the UTM codes. So yeah, we have something that we call a source ID because we can't, UTM is like, yeah, it's complicated or whatever, right? But like it, it, it only applies when it's linking to your website, right? So we, we can't necessarily act on that. We don't necessarily want to interfere with those either, but we have a similar parameter that lets you annotate a link. And so you could say, yeah, this click came from the newsletter and the newsletter converts the downloads way better than the Facebook page does, right? And so when we're like trying to promote the podcast, we're going to like focus really hard on the newsletter. Every new episode, we're going to feature it really prominently in the newsletter, right? So it's beneficial to create a smart link and then add the piece where you're designating a... Yeah, we call it a source ID. Yeah, a, cha- a source ID. for a channel. Okay, so create a channel-specific link, and then when, you, when you're in the newsletter and you promote the podcast, use that link there. Yep, that's right. And you can tag a link. You can either create separate, completely separate links for each channel, or you can use our source ID parameter and you know create use the same link if you like the way it looks or whatever, and then like use different source IDs. And that to me is just about understanding the top of funnel for your podcast. Right? It's what's really driving the listenership there. The other question that a lot of business owners have is okay, well, what what happens if they're absent? Right? <laughs> Do they? If I'm a coach, are they going to come and book a session? Right. Exactly. We do have integrations that will work for that. Although right now we primarily work with larger scale advertisers. We're working on improving our process so it can work with very small, smaller bases as well. And so that kind of integration, we've done it for some branded podcasts where if it's about somebody going to a website and, you know, filling out a lead form or buying something, we could do attribution back to the podcast from that. Chartable, you know, like the way I like to talk about it from like the super zoomed out standpoint is that we're we're helping to analyze the listener journey so we can help you yeah. take the listener from you know your the web from your web presence to your podcast. We can help if you advertise on other podcasts, like which a lot of folks do, whether it's guests, you know, or maybe they do a lot of guest spots. Yeah, of course. We can help do attribution between two podcasts, right? So it's a great way to grow your show. What does that require on behalf of the podcaster? So both sides need to either have our prefix installed in the feed, or we need to we can work with dynamic insertion, like if it's a dynamically inserted spot from like Megaphone, Art19, AdSwiz, or Triton, or AdNet, I think. The final step is the journey from the podcast back out to the web or taking some other action, whether that's downloading an app or buying something. And we we do our best to measure each step of that journey. And for a business owner, like each of those could be interesting, right? You know, happy to talk about it more <laughs> for your clients, but like, yeah, you yeah. know, each one of those steps is depending on the use case could be worth measuring, right? Yeah. And so the one that's universal for anyone trying to build their audience is that smart link, right? We keep going back to it because it's like, it doesn't matter how big or how small your show is. It doesn't matter whether you're advertising based, you're trying to sell another service or if it's part of your personal brand, everybody wants more downloads, right? (laughs) Everybody wants to figure out where their downloads are coming from. The links can be a really useful tool in your toolbox for them. Yeah, I'll definitely follow up with you offline and <laughs> yeah, we can dig out deep because this is the stuff I, I really geek out upon. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned you were programming as a kid. What's the first piece of 
tech or first computer that, that you remember? My dad in the 80s sold AutoCAD systems like uh, for wow. architects. So he was pretty early and he brought a computer home really early. So we had like a Radio Shack computer that hooked up the TV, which okay. I remember when I was yeah. a little kid. I had like a tape deck. That's how you loaded games onto yeah, it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I started, you know, I just fell in love with the things. And to my parents' credit, they would take me to the library and I would check out all the books on programming. There weren't that many. And, you know, type in the programs into the computer right into the basic thing and when i ran out of books there they just like they would just go you know they would help me buy books right and so you know i taught myself to program and i eventually ended up going to you know i made my first website in like the early 90s you know i had like a computer programming tutorials website right all hand coded yeah yeah for sure man so that's the only way to do it right and so you know i was really passionate about programming and about teaching other people to learn how to program honestly it's the only thing i've ever done for a job, right? Even as a kid, you know, I made websites for people in like middle school and high school really early on, you know, and I used yeah, the money yeah. to go buy like music gear. I was like, you know, <laughs> play guitar and stuff. And I would just like take every website I made, I'd be like, sweet. Now I can buy like some more cables for my guitar or whatever, you know, it's like. <laughs> so it sounds like you've always had that creative gene inside you as well. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, another like resonance with podcasting for me is that there is like, you know, I've been, I've played in bands and I played music for a huge chunk of my life. Oh, cool. But I also did college radio and, you know, my mom also did college radio at the University of Michigan. So we both did it at the same radio station. I was the music director of my college radio station. And this really, I actually haven't been on a podcast in a while or haven't done one in a while. And this like, this really does resonate with some part of me. You know, it just feels like it feels like something I, sh- I should be doing and it's something I enjoy doing. And so it's fun to be able to kind of mix that creative side with the kind of technical side. Like as much as I like being behind the mic, I can, I'm generally better behind the computer keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I stopped at uh, basic. So okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get past that. But I did. I remember the, the, the joy of, of doing your first programs and saving it to a cassette deck. I had a Tandy 1000. Yeah, we had a, my a first TRS-80. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. The, the crappier version. Just, yeah. There's something, you know, there have been a few moments in my life where there's been like that kind of joy of creation. And it feels like podcasting really allows people to have that habit of creation yeah, too. In true. a really kind of simple and straightforward way where the, the thing can be, you can make something. And I'm not going to use that line like, oh, it's so easy. Podcasts are so easy to make or whatever. But it does feel more accessible than a lot of other media. And it does feel like something that, you know, you can put your podcast out there and it's in the same app that ESPN and the New York Times are in. Exactly. Right? How cool is yeah. that, right? Like, wow, yeah, that's so cool. unusual. Yeah, there's just something, there's something that really kind of speaks to me about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like the DIY aspect of it and, and it scr- you know, scratch your own itch. Like if you have a passion for, you know, like, you know, like I have a friend of mine does the Walking Dead cast, uh, Jason awesome. Kabasi, yeah, yeah. created a whole network called Podcasts that go around fan base shows. And so it's just so cool that people can just, and then I've, I've interviewed like Susie Buttress. She's a bird watcher and she's created a podcast for bird watching. I love and it. it was just like, <laughs> the fact that you can go super, super deep and super, super niche. I think if you're doing it for the passion, and that's why I love this, this, this literally circles back to stats because I remember when Lipson started sharing like the median numbers, Rob Walsh does. Yeah. And if you're getting, uh, the latest is 125 downloads in the first 30 days your episode is live you're doing better than 50 percent of all shows and so numbers like that are really reassuring especially for new podcasters yeah for sure like you know what i don't need to like get the thousands or the tens of thousands of downloads i'm I'm making an impact if i have you know a couple hundred people listening yeah that one thing i always like to point out to folks whether they're creators or advertisers is that like 
one podcast download or one podcast listen is not the same as like a hit on a website or even yeah. a yeah, yeah exactly. click on a YouTube video. It's like people are spending so much time with this, these podcasts. It's incredible. It's incredible. And so especially for if, if you're working with businesses who are doing brand new podcasts, it's like, okay, maybe, maybe you got hundreds of downloads, but each one of those people spent hours with your brand. And that to me is something that like that this, the top line numbers don't always communicate. And so I try to try to show that because especially in this age of, you know, short attention span or whatever, it's like, yeah, this is a medium that actually really rewards, you know, attention. And so and engage listeners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a, it, it's a cool thing. This is always the case when you get the two podcast nerds talking about podcasting. <laughs> you, could literally, you could literally keep going yeah, for, for sure. hours. So we'll, we'll wrap this chapter up with a couple of questions. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? What's something I changed my mind about recently? Well, I mentioned in the beginning, we had just moved to the suburb. And I was honestly super conflicted about it. I'll tell you what, I love the suburbs, man. <laughs> it's great. It probably wouldn't have been great for me 15 years ago, but it's just been incredible for our family. I am so lucky to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's it, I can totally relate because... I love New York City. Like, I love the city. Passion. I'm, I'm the I'm the type of person that loves to be around crowds. I've always loved big cities. I'm in yeah. Minneapolis now, but I've lived in New York. I lived in LA, and I just get a buzz. And there's some people it makes people anxious to be around crowds. But I I remember every time I would come into, you know, LaGuardia or JFK, and then that drive into New York City. Yeah. And then when you hit the bridge and you see the skyline, like I would just like get so excited. Same. Same. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's always going to have a special place in my heart. But I can relate to like the idea of slowing down and it's probably age related you know so <laughs> the yeah, older you sure. get i've changed uh, the city hasn't really changed yeah, that yeah, that, that's true <laughs> that's true what's the most misunderstood thing about you Ooh, i don't know if i'm all that misunderstood i'm not even sure i'm not sure that i'm misunderstood maybe i am i mean like maybe i think people might be at least in podland might be skeptical of us because we're like the tech guys coming in but the truth is that yeah, I mean, yeah. hopefully it's that we love this thing and we want to be working and podcasting for a really long time. So maybe that's it. But ultimately, I feel like, and maybe, I don't know if everyone feels like this, but I feel like there's not a huge gap between how I perceive myself and how others perceive me. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out when episode's released. Yeah, exactly. Like, that Dave, is really warm and fuzzy. He's yeah. really a nice guy. <laughs> well, Dave, thank you so much. I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. You've been on my list for a long time. I'm, Same, I'm, a, man. I'm a big fan. And I think just even more so just at your sustainability in, in this industry, the fact that you your heart is into it. And and I think that's what I just keep finding as more and more of these creators come and are building these companies, that there's a passion for podcasting. And it's this rising tide lifts all boats. We want to, we want to see the industry succeed. We want to see the industry grow. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm very glad. I'm super glad we got a chance to, to tell your, your story as well. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to connect and uh, hopefully we'll do another one soon. Yeah, yeah. So what's the best place for folks to track you down? Um, you can find me at chartable.com <laughs> uh, or on Twitter. It's a D as in David, Zorob, Z-O-H-R-O-B. You'll see me uh, in the RSS feed somewhere. <laughs> and at a virtual conference sometime yeah, exactly. in the future. <laughs> well, we'll have all those links in the show notes. Thanks again for your time. All right. Thanks so much, Harry. Take care, man. So thanks again to Dave for sharing the Chartable origin story. It's always fascinating to hear as a fellow entrepreneur, the ups and downs that folks go through, how they came up with the idea, what early days were like, all that stuff I really geek out on. And I think some of you listening could relate to Dave's story. As always, don't forget to check out our sponsor Focusrite and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlet 2i2. Head on over to podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite to see their full line. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. 
Check out his entire list of music at cedarsoil.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. If your company is interested in learning how a podcast would be beneficial for your business, sign up for a free consultation at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week for my conversation with Scott Miller. He's the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey, a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and Inc. columnist. He's also the host of the On Leadership Podcast. Really fascinating conversation all about the importance of leadership in business, which I thoroughly enjoyed. If you've made it this far, you're waiting for the retention hashtag. Let's go with Analytics Dave, A-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S, Dave. And you can tag us at podcast underscore junkies. And Dave at DZOHREB, that's D-Z-O-H-R-O-B. Thanks again for all you do to support the show. I appreciate you listening every single week. Love you guys.